of the first minor. First, we explained what the acronym of Anila Dodi Vadadi Li represents, that it's an acronym of Elul, Aleph Lamed Vav Lamed, and that it represents the Avoda that's specifically prevalent in this month, which is that Anila Dodi, the initiation from below, what we call in Zoharic Kabbalistic terms, Isarosa de Lasata, which we call an arousal from below. That comes first in Elul. We have to make that initial effort. And then... Hello. I have. Thank you. And then Dodili is Hashem responding in, with um, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Right? So based on what we understand about what Elul represents, based on the acronym of Anil Dodili, we had two questions that we ended up with last class. The first one was, how can we possibly compare Elul, well, actually, that was the second one, but how can we compare Elul to Yom Kippur? Because the Arizal says that during Elul, there is a special awakening, there's a special um, revelation of Hashem's mercy, which we call the 13 attributes of mercy which are what Moshe basically tapped into to get God to forgive the Jewish people for the original sin of the golden calf and which we then tap into whenever we want Hashem to forgive us. It's a very, very, very high lofty level of godliness that we're going to delve into more in the second mimer to understand what that actually is. But the question was, if this is prevalent, how are we making our own effort? How can we be making our own effort down here if there's this very special energy present during Elul? How can we say it's a time of Ani Lododi? And how can we possibly compare that to Yom Kippur? So we're good with the questions, right? That's what we ended off with at the end of last class. Do you remember that, the questions? Okay. So the Altarabi now says, in order to answer this question, I need to first give you what we call in Hebrew a mashal. A mashal in English is an analogy. An analogy for a concept that we're going to have to understand about the uniqueness of the time period of Elul that will be able to help us understand how we can have these two opposites happening at the same time. On the one hand, a tremendous revelation of godliness, of God's truth that is not present throughout the year. And on on the other hand, a time where we have to take the step first step forward. So this is the story of the king, good morning, of the king in the field. So you guys have probably all heard of the king in the field. I'm going to give it to you as the Alter Rebbe teaches it. And as the, uh, the Rebbe has many maimarim, which elaborate on the king in the field. So just the context, because we usually hear the king in the field out of context. We hear, Elo means the king is in the field. Lovely. What does that mean? The Alter Rebbe is bringing this mashal now as an as a answer to these questions. How can we say that the Yudhugum Midotorachamim are present in Elul, while at the same time we have to make our own effort? So this is the analogy that the Alter Rebbe brings. I'm going to be expounding based on my marm of the Rebbe. So it's the mashal, the analogy is pretty cryptic in the, um, in the mimer of the Alter Rebbe, but the Rebbe has many mimer where he elaborates. So there was once a king, and he lived in his palace in the city, in the capital. And people weren't able to just approach him. Obviously, he was a king. He had to have special appointments. He had to be a special person. Not everybody could just approach the king. He was surrounded by his ministers, by his officers, by his servants. And that was the palace. And then the palace was in the city. In the city, there were all the sophisticated people. 
the people who are lawyers and doctors and engineers and who made the city function and run and who were very smart and intelligent. And they knew all about the king because they lived right near the king. They knew that they had this incredible king and they would sometimes see him passing by in processions. And they knew that all of their work was you know, important to help the, the king's kingdom run. So the Alter Rebbe describes two categories. There are the people who live in the city who are close to the king, who are sophisticated, who are smart. And then there are the people who live in the field. The field is on the outskirts of town, very, very far away from the city. The people who live in the field are much more simple. They're not sophisticated. They don't know engineering and they don't, can't defend themselves in a court case. And they're, they maybe even never went to school. And they don't really know much about the king because they live very far away from the king. They know they have a king, um, but they don't usually see him very often. You know, they don't see him. So they know of him as this abstract kind of concept. They have a very important job, though. What's the job of people in the field, of farmers? What's a farmer's job? To provide food. To make food. So on the one hand, they're like not very sophisticated and fancy, but on the other hand, they are the ones who have to provide the food for themselves and for all the people in the city, and to a certain extent, even for the king himself. The king depends on food. So their job is to provide food to the city people and to themselves and to the king. And... This is actually the most important job because as fancy and sophisticated as the people in the city are, if they don't have food, they're going to die. They're not going to be able to do all their fancy things. So the king wants the people who live in the field, wants the farmers to appreciate the importance of their role and to also appreciate that they have a king who they serve and who cares about them. And so one month out of the year, the king takes off his crown he takes off his royal robes, he leaves his servants behind, he leaves his whole entourage and all his officers, everyone stays behind, he comes alone to the field. And he puts on a checkered shirt, however we think farmer's dress, dungarees, you know, some sneakers or whatever, some blundstones. And the king looks like everybody else. He dresses up as a farmer, he's the king. He has all of the wisdom and the knowledge and the power and the sophistication and the royalty that a king has, but it's within him. Outwardly, he looks just like everybody else. And he goes for one month to the field and he makes himself accessible to anybody who wants to speak to him. So he doesn't have a stern face, he's smiling, he's approachable. Yes. But how would people know that he's the uh, king? So, he's so people know. It's not, so there's, it's not a disguise because he's not covering his face. So usually we know how a person's face looks. So he's not covering his face, but he's not coming with all of his royalty. So it's very, very easy to miss. That's the point. That if you take a look, if you really take a look, you'll see, wow, that, that's the king. It's like, wait, but he doesn't look like a king right now, but he still has all of that wisdom. So that's the thing. How what? do the farmers know what the king looks like? Though? like in the yeah, so, so that's a good question. The, the, the way the mashal kind of works is that there are some people who recognize and then tell everybody else. And some people are able to just totally say, that doesn't, I don't believe you. That's not the king. And just walk away. Mm-hmm. And then there are those who say, well, let's go speak to him. And it's find out. The moment you speak to somebody and you know, uh, you can find out whether they are, um, you know, whether they are royal or not. Somebody who's in, um, even the mashal that Chassid brings is if somebody is, if a minister is thrown into prison, 
he still remains a minister. He still has something to him that can't be taken away, even if he just looks like all the other inmates and is wearing, you know, the yellow, the orange jumpsuit and everything. You once you speak to them, there's there's a wisdom and there's a sophistication and integrity, whatever it is there, that can't be taken away. So there are the king comes, and there are three categories of people. The first category are people who say, I don't believe that's the king. Everyone's saying that's the king. That doesn't look like a king. I'm very, very busy. I am a farmer. People depend on me for food. This is a very important season. I need to go and work. And they never approach the king. Second category of people say, okay, let's try this out. I'm going to speak to him. I think it's the king. And I'm very busy, so I'm going to come like once a week and for an hour and go speak to the king. And they do that. They come over. The king speaks to them. He gives them advice about their life, about anything. The king is very, very wise. It's actually halacha. There's, there's Jewish kings, and there's a halacha about Jewish kings, that it has to be head and shoulders above the people, physically, but also spiritually and mentally as well. He has to be just much smarter than everybody else, much more wise. So the second group of people, they approach the king sometimes when they have time, they chat, and they get advice, and they get to know the king on a personal level. The king is very open. Great, but they're busy, so they go, you know, a little bit. And then there are the people who say, oh my gosh, this is the king. The king is here. He's just available. I'm going to come as often as possible to get to know the king, to speak to the king, to get advice from him, to hear how he thinks and how he um, thinks I should approach certain things in my life. And the third category are the ones, the rarest ones, who go as often as they possibly can all the time. They leave behind, even though work is beckoning and they aren't able to just take a month leave and the work is still there. They take the time, they make the effort, they push themselves to go as often as they possibly can to speak to the king to get to know him. This happens for a month. At the end of the month, the king gets up and he says, I'm going back to my palace. It was nice knowing you. You are all invited to come back with me. It doesn't matter if I know you, if I don't. Every one of the farmers in the field come back with me to the palace. So everybody follows the king back into his palace where they spend a few days with the king. But now they're not able to approach the king the same way that they were then. Now the king has put his crown back on. He's put his robes back on. He has his servants around him. They're in the presence of the king, but they have to behave differently. They can't speak the way that they usually speak in the fields. They have to, you know, learn certain manners and learn certain protocols. But they're completely overwhelmed, they get this incredible, unique experience of <coughs> spending time with the king in his palace. Until one day, a few days later, the king says, everybody out. It's been nice knowing you. The whole purpose of why I came to the field and then I brought you back was so that you know that you have a king, you know that you have a king who cares about you, and you know the importance of your job. But now, I'm closing the gates, you need to go back home and do the work that is so important. Go and provide food for everybody. So everybody's quite shocked, but they're all kicked out. The gates close, and they're all standing outside the palace. They're about to go home, and then they say to themselves, we've just had the most incredible experience that nobody else has. Let's try and internalize this. Let's take a moment. And so they start to sing and to dance and to celebrate the way the farmers celebrate. No, no longer are they all you know, prim and proper like they were in the palace. They're dancing, they're singing, and they're celebrating their king, and they're celebrating this incredible experience and opportunity that they had to get to know the king and have, be, have a relationship with him. And they're celebrating the opportunity that they have to feed the king and to feed the people of the city and their incredible job that they're going back to. And then after doing that, they all head back to the field and they have a year 
of working the field, providing food, doing what they do, knowing that they have a king who cares about them. That's the mashal. That's the analogy. The lesson, what we call in Hebrew the nimshal, I think that's a lesson, that's how you say it in English, of the analogy is like this. What does it mean that the king is in the field? The idea is that this concept of God's yud gimel midot harachamim, God as he is in his full infinity, as he transcends all worlds, as he is in truth, approaches us in Elul. He becomes available. That aspect of God, which is not usually that which is running the world because it's so lofty, it's so beyond creation, is involved and is present in the month of Elul. The king leaves his palace. He leaves that spot, what's called Keter, which we're going to discuss the source of the Yud Gimel a little bit later. In the second mime, we're going to be delving into that. But he leaves his spot and he comes and he's present. The Yud Gimel are present in Elul in a way that they are not present throughout the year. Hashem, as he is in his infinity, as he is transcendent, as he is the source of all mercy, not as he is a merciful God, but as he is the God who created the concept of mercy in the first place. That aspect of God is available and present during the month of Elul in a way that it is not any other time of the year. And this is sourced from the Arizal who teaches us this. What does it mean that the king is in the field though? The idea is that this aspect of God is here in Elul, it's present, but it's dressed up in farmer's clothing. It's not overt. It's not in your face. It's not revealed. We don't wake up in the morning and experience this presence, this infinity of God, which is here just by waking up, which we do, by the way, on Yom Kippur. When people wake up on Yom Kippur, they feel something. Because the Yurgim Omidatarachamim are revealed. Because God has then because the king has then put his crown back on and his robes back on, and we feel an awe because when you see royalty, when you see power like that, you're in front of you, your immediate reaction is awe, is fear, is reverence, is a desire to get close. But in Elul, the king is in farmer's clothing. This tremendous energy, this tremendous revelation of God is not revealed. It's here, but it's hidden. And our job is to approach the king. What does that mean? We need to tap into that energy by making an effort in our relationship with God. We need to approach God. Just like the farmers, they were able to say, eh, I don't feel anything. Nothing feels different this month, right? I mean, you guys just started my not, so maybe for you it's a little different. But think last year, this time. Did you wake up every morning in Elo like, oh my God, this is the Yurki Momiratarach, like something, there's something in the air. It's a regular month. The king looks like a regular guy. So we could wake up and we can just continue with that kind of unconscious reaction that we usually have to spirituality and to our Judaism like we do every other month. And we won't feel like we missed anything. Because at the end of the day, the farmers who didn't approach the king are always able to say, yeah, but maybe it just wasn't even the king. Like maybe it was, I don't know, like maybe it wasn't the king. And you know what? I was really busy. I had a lot to do. Elul is not a month where we just have off. We have work, we have studies, we have things to do. And 
So the job, the avoda of Elul is for us to take that first step forward. That's the Ani Lododi aspect of Elul. We initiate. We have to initiate an Elul. We have to take the steps to approach the king. But when we do take those steps, we get a tremendous amount of help from above. We then are able to speak to the king, right? That's the mashal. To have a conversation with him. To get advice from him to get to know him on a deeper personal level we have to take that first step but when we take that first step we tap into the energy of the month which is that the are present in this month and when we do that we are able to truly meet the king and when we are able to truly meet the king when the king schleps us back to the palace which is the analogy of rosh hashanah starting suddenly when rosh hashanah starts we do start to feel that energy. We feel like we are in the presence of God. We hear the shofar. We experience that feeling of being close, that feeling of awe. We're in shul. We have festive meals. We have symbols to remind us that we're in the palace now. To remind us that, yes, the yugi momidot rachamim are here. The king then takes us back into his palace. Suddenly it's Rosh Hashanah. We experience this revelation in a more overt way. We feel something. And if we took the opportunity in Elo to meet the king, when we're in the king's palace, we can feel comfortable. We know the king. We know where we are. We can actually take some steps forward. So that's the idea of Rosh Hashanah. If we use our Elo correctly, our Rosh Hashanah is completely different because we know where we are. We feel like we belong here. We belong with the king. The king knows who we are. We know who the king is. And we know our importance. We know the important role that we have. The idea that the farmers are the ones who provide food. So the people of the city in the lesson, okay, so first of all, the king is God, right? The king is God. The people who are all around the king, who live in the city, who are sophisticated, are what's called the angels, who, have a, who are much more spiritually in tune to the truth of God and who appreciate God on a much deeper level. And also what we call tzaddikim, which are basically almost the concept of angels in people, righteous people who are in tune with God in a way that regular people are not. So in the lesson, the people who live in the city, the lawyers, the engineers, the people who serve the king, they are, cons- are compared to the angels and to the tzaddikim. The people in the field, the farmers, are the rest of us regular people who don't aren't so in tune with God that we truly appreciate him and feel like we're close to him we feel far away we live far out from the kingdom of heaven I guess you could call it this place where the angels are constantly serving God and bursting up in desire for God and there's a whole spiritual world that we are completely not in tune with we are farmers we're out in the field but we have a very very special job and that job is Torah and mitzvahs. We, ha- we are the only ones who are able to do mitzvahs. Angels are not able to do mitzvahs. Neshamot, souls up in heaven, are not able to do mitzvahs because they do not exist in the physical world. And mitzvahs can only be done in the physical world. The moment there's no physical dimension, a mitzvah is not able to be done. When we do mitzvahs, that is considered that we are feeding the people of the city, and almost even to an extent feeding the king himself. The angels wait for us to do mitzvahs down here. When we do mitzvahs, which are the physical acts of connection to God that God told us explicitly, clearly, 
um, in detail what to do, how to do it, depending on where we find ourselves, what time of year, etc. When we do those mitzvahs, we are feeding the angels. We are feeding God himself. We are adding a certain element and revelation of God, not only to this world, but to all of the spiritual worlds that the angels are sitting and waiting for. So it says that the angels sit and they wait for a Jew to do a mitzvah because every time a Jew does a mitzvah, every time a Jew prays, every time a Jew learns down here in this physical world, the angels, the souls up above and all these different levels and elements of godliness that are helping the world run, they get an extra koch, they get an extra power. We feed them. We feed ourselves when we do mitzvahs. We add a certain element and power and dimension of God to our own lives, but we're also feeding the angels. We're feeding the the souls, we're feeding the spiritual worlds above, and God himself also waits for our mitzvahs. So God wants us to know how important our job is, even though we feel far away and we don't experience and appreciate God on the level of the city dwellers, God wants us to know how important he, our, our work is. And so God comes to us in Elul, but he comes to us in disguise. We have to take that first step. When we take that first step, we connect to God in a way we, can, we would never have been able to connect to him throughout the rest of the year. So we have to initiate, but when we do, our davening looks different. Our davening feels different. Our learning of Torah, we're able to de- delve deeper into levels of Torah in a way we weren't able to do throughout the rest of the year because it's Elul and because of this presence. And we're able to help people do mitzvahs, acts of goodness and kindness, and be much more generous with our charity. If we make that first effort, we're going to see that we're able suddenly to give a lot more. We're willing and excited to give a lot more, but we have to take that first step. And that's Elul. And then we get to Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, now we're in the presence of the king. We feel a little bit more, and we act a little bit differently on Rosh Hashanah as well. We're a little bit more careful with things and we're more aware. Even people who aren't religious or in shul all the time, many people end up in shul on Rosh Hashanah and specifically on Yom Kippur. There are many people who don't go to the shul throughout the year and like Yom Kippur, they're going to shul. And you ask them why and they'll give you all sorts of reasons. My father wanted me to go. I want to give you, make my parents proud. It's a tradition. And I don't know. Like, it's my one time a year. I'm a Yom Kippur Jew. Some people call it a Yom Kippur Jew. Everyone will have their reasons. But the true reason is that there is an energy, a palpable energy that touches our souls in a revealed way on Yom Kippur that draws people to show, that draws people to feel like maybe I should make an effort to fast. And obviously not everybody tangibly, um, actively observe Yom Kippur, not every Jew observe it, but many Jews will feel maybe that they missed out a little bit if they didn't. I had a friend, I had a friend in seminary, um, seminary starts right around this time and she wasn't sleeping. Like she got to Sam and she wasn't able to sleep. She was just not sleeping, sleeping. she was going crazy. She went to the doctor and he gave her a sleeping pill and she took it like the morning before Yom Kippur and she woke up after Yom Kippur finished. She was knocked out. She, she slept for the whole Yom Kippur. And she woke up and she was like, I just missed Yom Kippur. Like, I met, she fasted. She was forgiven. <laughs> all you have to do is fast on Yom Kippur to like, and we're gonna talk about that a little later. Um, because the energy is so strong, we don't even have to make too much of an effort on Yom Kippur. We just have to kind of show up. We have to fast, which is not even an active thing. Fasting is not an active thing. Just don't eat. You're not even doing anything when you're fasting. By fast, God's forgiven you already because that energy is so overt and powerful on that day. So if we miss Yom Kippur, we feel like we missed out. If you miss Elul, you don't feel like you missed out. But if you 
don't miss Elul, if you approach the king in Elul, if you make a more of an effort in Elul, even though your obligations remain the same in Elul, you don't have days off, you have to work, you have to study, you, ha- you, have, you know, it's a mundane week every week. There's no special um, times where we're going to shul other than Shabbat. If we make that effort in Elul, we get a tremendous, incredible amount of help because the Yud Gimomidat Rachamim are present in Elul, like they are present in Yom Kippur, but in a hidden, concealed way. The king is as close to us now as he's in Yom Kippur, but he's in farmer's clothing. So we have to push ourselves because it's much easier to act like you're in the presence of the king and want a relationship with the king when he is in front of you with all of his glory and his crown and his, and his whole, you know, all of the people surrounding him. It's much harder to make that effort when the king looks like everybody else. But when we make that effort, we can meet the king in a much more intimate way, in a way even more so than Yom Kippur, because on Yom Kippur, the farmers are in the palace, but they're in the palace. They have to behave in a certain way. They're not able to chat with the king anymore. They're able to be near the king and observe the king, but they can't just chat. In Elo, we can chat with the king. We can speak to him, but we have to make that initial effort. So this is what you should remember. The difference between Elul and Yom Kippur, the Ani Ladodi versus the Dodi Li, is that if you miss out on Elul, you won't feel like you missed out on anything. You're not going to be like, oh my gosh, I, like you won't feel something. But if you take the opportunity to make the effort in Elul, you will get help in a way that you would never have been helped any other time. And when you get that help, that unity that you experience with God, that relationship lasts the entire year, it sits with you and it gives you kach and power to be able to remain passionate about your relationship with God, remain passionate about our specific job down here, which is the Torah and mitzvahs throughout the whole year. The idea of then the king closing the gates, that's the idea of what we call ne'ila. Ne'ila means locking, closing. Ne'ila is the final prayer that we say on Yom Kippur, right? As Yom Kippur is right before it ends. It's when the gates are about to close. The king says, going back home now. This is your last chance to be in Yemen. You're going back home. You have to take all of this that you've learned, that you've experienced, and take it now with you into your year. So the king closes the gates, and everybody finds himself on the other side. The Yud Gimel are not tangibly felt anymore. But the Jews say, listen, we want to integrate this experience in a way that we integrate things, not in the way that royalty, as we were in the palace, integrates things. So they start to sing and they start to dance and to act in a joyous way just as farmers do. And that is considered the experience of Sukkot. Sukkot is the final process of, from Elo all the way to Sukkot, of this experience that we have with the king. And it's a time of joy. Sukkot is a time of joy where we eat and where we drink, where we act like people. We don't act as holy as we do on Yom Kippur. And yet we are celebrating this tremendous opportunity that we have to be the farmers, to be the ones who do the Torah and Mitzvah, to have had this experience with the king. We are celebrating in the way that we celebrate, as farmers celebrate, with celebration, with food, with physicality. And that is how we integrate that entire experience that we've had into our own lives. And then we can use that as a koach, as a power, as a push, to motivate us for the rest of the year to go back to the field and to do the job that we need to do. That is a mashal and that is a nimshal of the king in the field. The altar of his king in the field ends by Elo, 
by the field. That's it, the king is in the field. The Rebbe expounds on this and continues the mashal into Yom Kippur, into going into the palace, into Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and into Sukkot as well, that period of time outside the gates of the palace where we sing and where we dance and where we celebrate. And this is given, this mashal is given as an answer to the original questions that we had. We, had to, we were trying to understand Elul is a time where we have to initiate. We said Elul is the beginning of the winter months where the sun is hiding, where we have to seek out our own warmth. It's a time where God is not as overtly giving to us free gifts. It's a time where we have to initiate. But at the same time, there's a tremendous, tremendous energy and presence of God in Elul. How do we, how do we match these two things how can these two things work together the answer is the king in the field the king is here he's in the field he's right next to us the are right here but the king is dressed in farmer's clothing the the are here but we don't feel them we don't wake up in the morning and feel like today is a special day we have to still make that effort but when we make that effort we get help we get a lot of help because the Alter Rebbe st- starts off this mimer this by saying we don't naturally have a love and fear of God within us in an overt, experienced way. It's not normal and natural for human beings. We don't wake up in the morning and automatically feel, I love God. I'm in awe of God. And the reason for that is because we are physical and we are motivated and influenced and aroused by things that we can see with our eyes. And God, we just cannot see with our eyes. So the human condition is that we don't naturally experience these things in an overt way. Yes. Yeah, so regarding Sadiqim, do they not have that, you know, yeah, that physical state of, like, how, how, how are they able to feel God in every moment and wake up and just feel his presence? And how come some are not able to do that? Um, so Sadiqim have a completely different avoda in general. Their avoda means their job, their mission in this world is just a different mission. And their experience of God in this world is completely different. So even though they have a physical body, their physical body is so nullified to the spiritual soul that they have within them that it doesn't obscure. So even though they are looking at the world with fleshly physical eyes, they're able to see dimensions within this physical world that we cannot see because they are much, much more in tune with the truth of reality, with the truth of their own soul, with the truth of God. It's a gift that God just gives certain people this, tr- this soul that is able to experience the truth in a completely different way. And their purpose is, their mission in this world looks very different to ours. So their Elo looks very different than our Elo. Their every single time, every single um, mission that we have in this world for tzaddik looks different and the general general distinction i can give is that tzaddikim's role is more to to help us to be able to connect with god to be sort of like a middleman because it's a person it's a human being but also in touch with god in a much deeper way so there to help people who don't see to open their eyes and to see um but they also have their own avadas it says that mashiach is going to teach tzaddikim how to do teshuva so they're also ascending in levels of holiness and working on their relationship with God and their fellow Jew, but it looks a little bit different. But we're talking about the people specifically in the field. And the people in the field, when they wake up in the morning, they don't feel, they don't see the king. The king is not, there's not signs saying, oh, the king is going to have, you know, like people who live in, in London, I know now it's the king, king, of, king, of, king of England, like 
they know more about what's going on. Suddenly, like uh, my, my mom's from London, like my aunt was just walking once and there was a procession and the queen just like passed, you know? Like that is not something that we experience when we're further away. The closer you are to the king, if you're an angel, if you're a soul, if you're a tzaddik, you're just more aware of the truth. But because we're so far away, we don't ever chance upon God. Like, oh, you know, I see God now. We don't. We don't see that. It's not natural for us. There are times where God helps us in an overt way, which is the time of Pesach, where we, it's easier just naturally to feel a connection to God. God gives that to us as a gift. We're able to be, feel free and to feel in tune and in touch. And then there are times where it's really we're just regular people. We just wake up in the morning and we automatically think, I am here. I see the physical world around me. I don't see God. But through learning about the incredible, incredible opportunity of Elo, we can motivate ourselves to take that step, even though it's difficult because it's coming not from a place of passion, not from a place of emotion. It's not like I wake up and I think, I really feel like I love God today, so I'm going to do something for him. We're waking up with no motivation. The motivation has to come from us, purely from us. That's the Anil Dodi. You are motivating yourself, but when you... Take, you, first of all, take the step to motivate yourself. And the rest of the mimer, which we're not going to get too much into, is speaking about how to actually motivate yourself. What if you find yourself, the Alter Rebbe brings a third category of people who live in the desert. People who are so far away from the king, not only are they not farmers, they're in the desert. And he calls those people, those are the people who are so closed up to God, their hearts have turned to stone, that even if they want to make an effort, they just it's so difficult there's so many blockages there's so many layers covering up their soul and how to motivate yourself and push yourself to break through that to get to a level of the field the Rebbe says the seventh Rebbe Rebbe that every single Jew is in the field so he kind of changes the king in the field a little bit the Rebbe he says every Jew is able to approach the king doesn't matter how many sins a person has or what he did the previous year or how covered up his soul is or how non-in-tune he is with his godliness and with his spirituality and with his Judaism. If the person takes that effort and makes that effort, he will meet the king. So the author of says, no, no, no. If a person is full of sin, if not even full of sin, the author of actually, his standard is if a person even has one sin, he is on a level of midbar, actually, of what? the field. Yes, yes. Midbar is the desert. He has to take extra steps. He has to travel from the desert to the field, and then he can meet the king. So he has to. There's many steps he has to take first before he can actually tap into the tremendous energy of Elo because he's so desensitized. Because every sin, what does every time we miss out on an opportunity for a mitzvah or we do something that God explicitly told us not to do, we are desensitizing our soul to the truth. So every time we do that, we feel further and further away. We end up lost somewhere in the desert. This is how the author explains it. And first we have to find our way back. We have to find our way back. So the author says the people in the field are actually what we call Bainonim. Bainonim are people who aren't tzaddikim, so they don't wake up in the morning and just see God, but they never sin because they have such a tremendous level of self-control that they never, ever, ever sin. The Rebbe says everyone's in the field. Every Jew is in the field. We make that effort, we take that step, we meet the king. So, so the Rebbe, the seventh Bible Rebbe is speaking to our generation, right? So that's why even though we're learning the Alter Rebbe's um, 
Mimer, it's very important to remember what is the king in the field for our generation. The king in the field for our generation, we just have to make that effort. But for the rest of the Mimer, yeah. But I would agree with Alter because that's what I feel. Like I feel so like far away. Desert. Yeah. So. So thanks for bringing that up. So so I'll, I'll first of all, what the Alter the process of of going from the desert to to the field is steps, depending on how far somebody feels. So the Alter starts by saying that he should um, beg for mercy on his soul. He should, he should arouse rachamim, mercy within him, and just actually sit and contemplate on the state of his soul. Like, think about your soul as a person, as somebody who can relate to. A person who has desires, who has needs, who has wants, and every single time they express their desire, gets shut down. Nope, not listening to you. I want this. So what? Too bad. I'm not giving that to you. I want to live my life in this way. Too bad. You can't. You're going to live your life in this other way. That's the experience of our soul on a day-to-day basis. Our soul wants us to be in a constant state of love and fear and connection to God and to be doing the right thing and to be staying away from the wrong thing. And every single time we don't listen to that, it's like, it's called almost like we're trapping our soul in a prison. Our soul is like in prison. And so the elder says the first step is to sit and to contemplate and to meditate on the state of our soul and arouse within us mercy on our soul. Just like if you would think about this poor person who keeps trying, you know, he wants something, he desires something, he wants to live his life in a certain way and there's all these things that are stopping him. You can't express the truth of who he really is or who she really is. That makes us feel bad. So then we feel bad for our soul. When you feel bad for your soul, you have mercy on your soul, you're able to start to be motivated to actually take care of your soul and to actually listen to it sometimes and to bring it forth to the servant and say, okay, what do you want? What are you asking for very quietly? Our godly soul is very quiet. It's whispers. <laughs> start to listen to it. Then the Alter Rebbe says there are people though who even if they try to arouse mercy on their soul because they have done so many things that have taken them so far away, they need to, um, they need to, they need to beg Hashem to have mercy on, on, the, on them, basically, because they aren't able to arouse mercy within themselves. And if that doesn't work, then the Alter Rebbe says that they should break themselves through physically, like push themselves in ways that just snap them out of the trance and the state and so that they can experience their godly soul again. These are avodas that the Alter Rebbe is detailing out for the people of his generation. The Rebbe was radical in his approach to how we end up in the field. The Rebbe's approach was that our generation has to do everything from a place of joy. Everything. The Rebbe was extreme in this, okay? It was like, our generation is not built for this, for this breaking ourselves, for this getting ourselves down, getting angry at our, at our, at our physical side of ourselves. That doesn't work in our generation. Not only does it not work, it backfires and it takes us even further. Sadness, depression, anger, um, these negative emotions take us further away from our truth. It's just the way that our generation works. So the Rebbe's approach to the king in the field, you're in the field, you have to approach the king from a place of joy. Action is the most important thing, so do what you need to do, even if you don't feel it, and eventually hope you'll, you'll feel it, do it from a place of joy. And also, the, the Rebbe says, trust Hashem that He will have mercy on your soul and He will allow you to get in touch with your soul. Because when you truly trust Hashem, 
that is going to become your reality. When you truly trust that, that, is, that God is going to help you, God will actually help you. It has to come from a positive place. But we could still um, like try to have mercy on ourselves. Definitely. Def- it's actually a very practical outward. meditation that the altar Rebbe brings. It's a very practical thing. Mm-hmm. Think about your soul. We don't usually think about it. We think about our animal soul all the time because it's loud. It says, I want to eat. I want to drink. I want this. I need that. I need that. All day it's loud. So that's what we're thinking about. Our godly soul is every time we get a push from our animal soul that it wants something, our godly soul is giving us a push at the exact same time. It's so much quieter though that we have to quiet everything down and listen. What, what do you want? And it's very hard to do that. So first, if we are able to arouse this mercy, to actually like feel, feel a little bit bad and be like, wow, to think and contemplate on the state that our godly soul finds itself in day in and day out in the experience in this world, that can act as a push and a motivator to start to listen to what it wants. Or it can make us feel guilty. Or it can make you feel guilty. And that mm-hmm. is not the abode of this generation. Right. So we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to be honest with ourselves. Because Elul is not supposed to be a time of guilt. It can be a time of regret Regret and guilt are very different. Regret is like, I wish I'd done things differently, so I'm going to change. Guilt is like, I've, I, I'm bad. Like, guilt and shame, I guess we can, like, regret can kind of push us forward in a, in a positive direction, and shame almost takes us backward. Like, you give up. Yeah, because you just, I'm, I'm just a bad person. Like, I, I'm, I'm guilt. I did all these bad things. That's not the approach we're supposed to be taking. And it's interesting because tonight is Chai Elul. Have you guys heard that tonight is Chai Elul? It's the 18th of Elul. Oh. Tonight is the birthday of the Alter Rebbe and of the Baal Shem Tov. They were both born on the 18th of Elul. 18, the numerical value of 18 is Yud Chet. The numerical, the, yeah. So Yud, Yud Chet, 18 means Chai. Chai, if you take Yud Chet and you switch it around, it's Chai, it means life. So we call it Chai Elo, the life of Elo, because the Baal Shem Tov and the Alter Rebbe, through them being born and teaching us these messages of Hasidus, they taught us a whole new dimension of Elo. They added life into Elo. Elo is commonly seen as a time to feel guilty, to feel afraid because Rosh Hashanah is coming, right? Because we're going to be judged. And that is how Elo was associated. Hasidus' approach to Elul is it's an incredible opportunity. That's the king in the field. The king in the field means we are sitting right now with an incredible opportunity. We have to take the first step. We have to do something. But if we do something, we are going to meet God in a way that is joyous, that is so joyous that when we get to Rosh Hashanah, we know the king. It's not a, it's not a time of fear because we've met the king already in Elul. We know this guy. We've spoken to him. He gave us advice. We can now sit in the palace and feel just loved and feel excited to do the job that we need to do and feel a connection. And so this whole idea of Chai Elo, which is tonight and tomorrow, um, hopefully you guys will forbring about it a little bit, ask your shlachas. It's the birthday of the Baal Shem Tov and the Alter Rebbe. It's the day that God decided that this new movement needs to come into the world and this approach and this movement, which happened specifically in Elo, it added a whole new dimension and version of Elo. The version, the Altarepi's version of Elo is radically different than everybody else's. It's become very commonly accepted today 
but it was a radical approach. Elul is seen as a time to repay your debts. Repay your debts, feel bad for the things that you did before, be nervous and afraid that Rosh Hashanah is coming. The altar will be said, no, 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 no. Elul is a month like no other month. And it's a whole month. When do we have a whole month? Every single time that there's a Shabbat or there's a Chag, there's an extra energy. There's a tremendous extra energy. And that's why, as we discussed, it's not that because it's a Chag, there's a tremendous energy. There's a tremendous energy, so we celebrate. But it's usually a day or two days, maybe a week, like Sukkot, like Pesach. Elul is a whole month. It's a whole month. The challenge of the fact that it's a whole month, and it's, it feels like a regular month. But we can have a whole month of an elevated godly experience if we make the effort. And according to the effort is the reward. And how does one make that effort if they, like, can't feel Hashem? Like, like I don't know, like, when you say, for example, that he's, he's available, you can meet him, you can reach out to him, how, how do you do that? And, like, how do you connect to someone on a person? Like, to, how do you connect to Hashem on, like, that type of person? When he's so far away. Yeah. Very, very good question. So we're going to be, we're going to be dealing with that in this mimer. We're going to be speaking, trying to understand what... What is the role of the Yud Gimel Midat and we're going to try, we're going to learn how that is the power that enables us to do Teshuvah, and we're going to learn what Teshuvah is. But for now, till tomorrow, because we have a whole day, it's the things that we do throughout the year. It's not like Elul now we have to wake up and start meditating for three hours in the mountains. Like it's not like there's a new thing in Elul. It's the things that God wants us to do to do them and to do them with extra kavana, with extra intention. And to do them with, um, to, to make more of an effort, so maybe a little bit longer. So we pray. God wants us to pray all the time. We pray in Elul. Maybe add five minutes to your prayer. Maybe think about it a little bit more. Because when you do that, God comes and helps. And then our prayer can feel different. So the way we describe it is Teshuvah, Tefillah, Tzedakah. Have you heard that? So Teshuvah, we're going to discuss what is Teshuvah. That's what we're really going to be discussing in this mimer. Um... Tefillah is prayer, and tzedakah is acts of goodness and kindness, whether it's financially or in other ways. It's the things that we do throughout the year. There's no special magical formula of Elul that if we tap into it properly, then we're going to find the king. It's the things that God told us throughout the year, this is how you can meet me, through the mitzvahs, through the Torah, through prayer, through acts of goodness and kindness. That is how you meet me. So we need to approach the king in the way that he told us we can approach him always but with a little bit more of an effort. Now, some people are so not motivated that they don't even feel like inspired to do that, right? Like, that is, um, that is, that it feels already too hard and too distant and too far and even to just pray. Um, and so, so we have the Alter Rebbe's advice, which is to think about your godly soul, which wants these things desperately, constantly, all the time, to think about the state of the godly soul and arouse mercy, because mercy is almost considered like a gateway emotion. Once you feel mercy for your soul, you're feeling an emotion for your soul. And even though, and we have to be very careful that it doesn't turn into a negative emotion because mercy doesn't have to be a negative emotion. We have to be careful it doesn't turn into guilt and shame, but it's considered like a gateway emotion. When we can arouse mercy, suddenly we feel something, even though it's mercy, it's not love, it's not fear, it's not motivation to change the world and to, to be intimate with God all the time, but it's an emotion. And once you've cracked open your heart to feel some sort of emotion, you can take the next steps to start to feel more and to feel more and to get that motivation. 
So we're going to be continuing on that vein. Practically now, how can we tap into this energy? What does that look like? What does this energy actually help us do on a practical level? That is what the second mimer is going to be delving into. And that's what we're going to be trying to understand. And also just in general, trying to understand what do we mean when we say the 13 attributes of mercy? What does that mean? It's a nice name. It's God as he is the source of mercy. What, what aspect of God is that? And how can we tap into that? That's we're going now could be going into the second mimer. So I just orally basically told you in two classes, the first mimer, mainly we focused on the first chapter, which gives us the questions and then the answer in this lesson of the, in the mashal of the king in the field. The next chapter then gives the analogy, the lesson, and then goes into, well, what about a Jew who's in the midbar that he needs to arouse mercy on his soul? That mercy is that like gateway emotion. And then he can start to, peel away that, the layers that are like stone over his heart so he can feel something and then he can go and find himself in the, in the field. We're going to be going inside now to the Mimer of the Alter Rebbe from tomorrow. Okay, so we're going to be doing some Hebrew, but again, we're going to, you can follow along totally in the English. I'm going to be um, translating and we're going to be seeing also and getting involved and introduced into the style of the Alter Rebbe, which is very, very perfect timing because we're going to be celebrating the Alter Rebbe's birthday tonight and tomorrow. So we're going to be learning some of his Torah then, which is great. Okay, so have a wonderful day. Use today, use every day. We're halfway through Elul already. Um, and that's not supposed to be like, oh my gosh, I'm freaking out because we're almost Rosh Hashanah and we're going to be judged. No, no, no. We have still almost two weeks of an incredible opportunity every single day. Okay, and you're in a great place to be tapping in to that opportunity. So I'm excited for you all. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And I can still not feel. (laughs) It's a long time. Yeah. Oh, you had a